So a number of years ago, I nearly died or could have died driving north on this highway out of Santa Fe, uh, New Mexico. I was heading back to Fort Collins, Colorado, and I had several friends in the car with me. I came up behind this car on the highway that was going slower than I wanted to go, and so I looked in my mirror, in my mirror, put on my blinker, and just whoo, swooped into the other lane. Didn't see anything there. And the shriek of a car horn greeted me. Someone laid on the horn hard and fast and furious because I had a blind spot there, right? We all know this moment in the car. And I had just nonchalantly looked in my, both my mirrors, thought there's nobody there. I didn't think anybody was behind me, moved over. And they had slowed down just enough to drop like five feet back. And I was right in front of them. And they, their quick response probably saved my life, my friend's life, their life. And then now they were just letting me know, like laying on the horn, <laughs> that they were there. They were like, hello. And then they just kept letting me know that they were there. Like, hello, we're here. And the weird part about this experience for me was instead of feeling gratitude or relief for letting me know that they were there in my blind spot, I felt a little bit embarrassed. I felt a little bit ashamed. And mostly I felt angry, like somehow they were at fault for all of this. What were they doing there in my blind spot? <laughs> what the heck? Stop honking already. It was an accident. Didn't mean to do that. So I share this story this morning because we're moving into this theme of wholeness. And although this story might seem unrelated to the theme of wholeness, I think it's deeply related, in fact. It seems to me that uncovering those blind spots, those parts of our lives that we cannot see or have a hard time seeing or just ignore, it seems to me that uncovering those blind spots and bringing them into our full awareness and attention is deeply connected to wholeness. In fact, our re universalist religious ancestors engaged in that very work of uncovering blind spots. They looked at the religious landscape of their time and they saw these huge blind spots, what they saw as huge blind spots in the religious paradigm of their time. The religious leaders around them were teaching and preaching and suggesting that God was vengeful and angry, that God would punish some and reward others. And those early universalists were like, if you imagine them in a car, like, beep, 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 hello, hey, buddy, <laughs> little blind spot there. We think you're missing something in the religious landscape. What if God is bigger than that, more loving? What if God is not so into punishment and separating the saved from the damned? What if uh, there's a different way to look at God? It was dangerous to preach and teach a different message, but these universalist men and women, they started to tell a different story about the love of God, the love of the creator, the love that was at the center of things, a love that was so compelling, so persuasive, so luring, so powerful that nothing and no one was outside the reach of that love. We might be broken, we might be flawed, these universe, early universalists said. We might be less than perfect, but no one is outside the circle of love's embrace. At the end of the day, they said, everything will be reunited, reconnected, reconciled with a loving and merciful God who holds it all, no 
exceptions. And so this belief began to shape their living. They began to preach hope to people, not hell. And the universalist mantra became, and I love this, if we're all going to end up in heaven anyway, we might as well figure out how to get along on earth. Like, if we're all going to end up, if I'm going to be with all of you, I mean, this is their thinking, right? Like, we have a different language and understanding of God in heaven now. But if you imagine that we're all going to end up in the same place anyway, so I might as well start practicing now how to be in right relationship with you. So today, those core sentiments remain. We have different understandings of heaven. We may not use the word God or have a different understanding of what that means. But like I said last Sunday, those core principles, those core ideas are with us. We believe we all come from the same source. You can call it the Big Bang. You can call it stardust. You can call it sacred reality. We believe we will all return to that source. So it hardly makes sense then as religious people to imagine that straight people are better than gay or lesbian or bisexual people or that male and female people are better than transgender people or that white people are better than black people or people of color. It doesn't make sense to believe that people who believe in God are somehow better than atheists or agnostics. None of that makes any sense in this worldview, in this religious tradition. Our religious tradition calls us to be in deep relationship with every part of creation, with every part of ourselves, because it's all sacred, it's all connected, it's all from and held by the same source. So the universalists said, in the religious landscape, there's a really big blind spot that would suggest somehow some people are better or saved or more holy than others. So when we talk about the universalist spirit of love and hope of this place, that's what we're talking about. And there's something interesting to layer in at this moment. The, I want you to know that the root of the Hebrew, Hebrew word for hope, so we talk about the universalist spirit of love and hope, the Hebrew word for hope, the root of that word means to twist or to twine. In other words, hope is about the fragile threads, the threads that twist and twine together to make a cord or a rope, the threads that connect us to one another, the threads that connect us to creation. Universalism suggests we are already held in that web of love and mercy, and our task then, alive on this planet, is to take those threads of hope to twine them, to wind them, to connect them to others around us, to strengthen the connections all around us. Our task is to build heaven on earth, if you will. In this framework, we can understand heaven or love as a place where everything is connected and those connections are seen and valued. So heaven is a place where things are deeply connected, intimately related and connected, and those connections are visible. So this gives us a very clear picture on the other side of what hell looks like. Not hell as some otherworldly burning fire kind of place, but hell in this world, it is a lack of connection. 
T.S. Eliot refers to hell as the place where nothing connects to nothing. Hell is disconnection. Hell is shattered communities, overwhelming addictions, loneliness, ongoing, unending war. Hell is where nothing connects to nothing. Hell is disconnection. So on some level, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that hell, in part, is our blind spots, is the parts of our world or our psyches or who we are, the parts of our identity that we cannot see, that we are connected to. And our work is to make those connections explicit. So if we can't see the blind spots, that can create lots of problems. This applies to many dimensions of our life, of course, but this morning I am thinking particularly of myself as a white person who believes and has been taught that I am white. And I'm thinking that if I am not fully connected to that white identity, that white racial identity, and understand how that functions in the world and how it functions in this church, then I'm living with a huge blind spot which may, in fact, create hell on earth for myself, for others. When I act colorblind, and I still do this sometimes, when I say, well, it's really race, it's not about race, I don't see race, and I don't believe I have a racial identity, or when I only focus on the victims of racism without looking at my own complicity in the system or without seeing the strength and the resilience of people of color, I'm living with a huge blind spot. I'm not living a whole life, and I'm actually deeply disconnected from significant parts and pieces of my life and my identity. So if I could see those parts and bring them together, I love the story that Elaine shared, I might be able to bring together the things that seem disconnected that I look at and barely see the, the metal twine, the wood, the pegs, and then create something of beauty in my life. But here's the rub. started talking about race. The rub is in the process of examining blind spots, especially racial identity, especially if we're white, it just gets a titch uncomfortable, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. When we talk about race, when we talk about the movement for black lives and for lives of color, when we start to talk about whiteness, it stirs stuff up, especially for white folks. And so I want to share two things this morning. You can think of them, think of the story that Elaine shared. You can think of them as these scraps of wood or twisted wire that as we pick those up and make sense of them, they might help us create some beautiful music on this racial justice journey. And I have to be honest too. This feels really important to talk about with you this morning. One, because of where we are in the conversation in our country on a national level, and two, because locally, right here in this faith community, I know there are some of you white folks who have asked, are we just a one-issue church? Is this just what we're gonna talk about from now on? Race, 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 race. So first, let me say clearly, we are not a one-issue church. 
You heard me earlier talk about these partnerships with Beacon Interfaith Housing Collaborative, with Emerge, with Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, Habitat for Humanity, Augsburg Fairview Academy. There's all kinds of ways we're engaging in the community around justice issues. You can learn more after the service downstairs. We are not a one-issue church. We are a church committed to racial justice that is going to talk about race explicitly, but not exclusively. Explicitly, but not exclusively. And I think it's helpful to remember in this conversation that if we're not talking about race, stay with me here, church, if we're not talking about race, we are in fact having a very detailed conversation about race. And it's a conversation about whiteness and the white norms that exist and pervade the majority of the institutions, including this church in the country. So if we're not having a conversation about race, there's a default conversation that is in fact happening. So, yeah, right on. Which is hard to get your mind around on some level, but that's, that is true, I believe. So we're gonna talk about race explicitly, but not exclusively. What that means is if we're gonna talk about housing and homelessness, we need to talk about the fact that the highest rates of homelessness are among people of color, and this is not an accident or fate. There were and there are policies and practices, redlining and unscrupulous lending practices that have helped create that reality. So if we talk about homelessness, we have to bring in those dynamics. We have to talk about the criminalization of poor people of color. We have to talk about school funding and property taxes, and we have to make the racial dynamics of homelessness explicit. If we're gonna talk about environmental ministry, we have to talk about the Hennepin Energy Recovery Center, the Herc Incinerator, and where the smoke blows when our trash gets burned. I'm promising you it's not South Minneapolis where the smoke blows. We have to talk about green energy and the solar boom we're in right now and ask who benefits from solar energy? Who has access to solar energy? Who puts in the solar panels? Who gets the jobs, the green energy jobs? And we have to ask where are we listening to voices of indigenous people? So this is to say in those two examples, we're not a church solely focused on race, race, race. We're a church that will talk about race explicitly but not exclusively. So it's race and education. It's race and policing and the criminal justice system, race and employment, race and gender, race and this church. And we're doing this because our faith, if we take it seriously, demands that we move toward the wholeness that comes from this kind of journey. That is the first thing I wanna lift up this morning talk about race explicitly, but not exclusively, because it's tied to the wholeness of who we are as people. And the second thing I wanna lift up is I think part of what's happening in this journey, for me, it's happened many times, and I suspect for some of you who identify as white, it's happened as well. It's this thing where we bump into what's called white fragility. Maybe you've read an article about white fragility. It's a term coined by Robin DiAngelo, this racial and social justice educator, she argues that white people are protected and insulated from race-based stress because we have organized society in large part to reproduce and reinforce our racial interests and perspectives. Whiteness and white norms, she says, are seen as universal, as benign, as neutral, and good. That's 
serve the world, most of us as lay people, not all of us, of course, but many of us live in. And I want to give a shout out to the people of color in this congregation who are on this journey with us, who are walking this journey with us, who are on our racial justice leadership team and teaching religious education, who are members of this church, whose children are in this church. And I want to say, I can see how hard it is at times to move in this mostly white space. I see you navigating and challenging the space and the conversations with finesse and grace and some frustration. I see you gently trying to point out the blind spots and sometimes being frustrated by our blind spots. And so for the folks of color who are with us on this journey, I am so grateful for your presence. What many people of color see every day, that racism is multidimensional and highly adaptable, that it's everywhere all the time, sort of like sexism still too. I don't know if you're seeing that in this campaign, but that is there as well. Like we think we're beyond racism, we think we're beyond sexism, and then it's just there all the time in subtle and not so subtle ways. People of color see racism all the time. Whites often have a harder time seeing it. D'Angelo gives the example that many white folks, again, not all of us, of course, but many of us live and grow and play and work and learn and love and die primarily in social and geographic racial segregation. She goes on to say, our society does not teach us to see this as a loss. She suggests that white folks should pause for a moment and consider the magnitude of that messaging. The messaging that says we lose nothing of value by having no cross-racial relationships in our life. She goes on to say, in fact, the whiter our schools and neighborhoods are, in many cases, the more likely they are to be seen as good. The implicit message here, she says, is that there is no inherent value in the presence or perspectives of people of color. This is an example of the relentless messages of white superiority that just circulate around us, shape our identities and worldview. So she's setting up the argument for how white fragility works. She goes on to point out that white people receive constant messaging from many, many places. So curriculums where our history is sort of central, from media and advertising, for everyday discourses on good neighborhoods and schools and who is in them. She argues that challenges to our white racial identities, and I would say challenges like we've been experiencing in this faith community the past couple of years, they can trigger real stress for white people. It's not the same as the stress that people of color experience moving through the world, but it's real stress for white people where we feel like our very identities as good, moral people are being questioned. We feel it's unfair and morally offensive to be connected to a system of racism. As a result, white people push back to gain some racial equilibrium, and that pushback is what D'Angelo calls white fragility. Do you experience this? Am I making this up? Is, is Robin D'Angelo making this up? I, I know I've experienced this a number of times, my own pushing back in ways sort of subtle and not so subtle and sometimes deeply internal, and I've experienced it in this congregation, and it's not to say, oh, we should feel guilty or ashamed of this or this is terrible. It's just an observation of what is happening. And the term fragility, fragile, 
which points to something easily broken, something not having much strength, something very delicate. That relates to this theme of wholeness. And what we're trying to do as a faith community, which is to create a greater sense of wholeness for all of us as we push back against the hell of racial oppression and white superiority. As D'Angelo writes, the antidote to white fragility is ongoing and lifelong. This racial justice journey is not a two or a three or a four year initiative. It will be front and center for as long as I serve this congregation. It is lifelong and ongoing, she says. It includes sustained engagement, humility, and education. What better place to do this than a faith community? D'Angelo writes, we begin this work by being willing to tolerate the discomfort associated with an honest appraisal and discussion of our internalized superiority and racial privilege. We deepen this work by taking action to address our own racism, the racism of other whites, and the racism embedded in our institutions. And in this church, we've also created a space for people of color to come together to do their own work and learning and healing as it relates to racial justice. And all of that, all of what we're doing is in service to this larger vision. If we believe we come from the same source and are held, call it the big bang, call it God, call it love, they're held by that same source, then a racial hierarchy does not reflect any sort of legitimate underlying reality. It is a deadly illusion. And until white people can really begin to unpack our own racial identity and understand how whiteness works, there is this huge blind spot that prevents us from fully living our faith from achieving a kind of wholeness in ourselves, in this community, in our neighborhood. We will be stronger, more whole people if we uncover these blind spots, whatever they may be. If we move past that fragility, if we show up with humility and courage and a willingness to listen. Instead of getting angry at our blind spots, or the people who call out our blind spots or barely look at what seems to be junk or just something irrelevant to us, let us turn toward it. See it as clearly as we can. Let us not respond with shame or anger, but compassion and abiding love. Let us hold ourselves accountable to the heart of our faith which calls us toward whole life living. Let us weave the fine threads of hope ever more deeply among ourselves and the larger community. And in doing so, may we create something whole 